0: Um, Today's reading is from Acts chapter 26 and verse 9 to 18, Um, and that's on page 1,124 of the Church Bibles. Acts 26, verse 9 to 18. I was so obsessed with persecuting them that I even hunted them down in foreign cities. On one of these journeys, I was going to Damascus with the authority and commission of the chief priests. About noon, King Agrippa, as I was on the road, I saw a light from heaven, brighter than the sun, blazing around me and my companions. We all fell to the ground, and I heard a voice saying to me in Aramaic, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. Then I asked, who are you, Lord? I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting, the Lord replied. Now get up and stand on your feet. I have appeared to you to appoint you as a servant and as a witness of what you have seen and will see of me. I will rescue you from your own people and from the Gentiles. I am sending you to them to open their eyes and turn them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, so that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. Thanks be to God.
1: Thank you very much, Jim and Emma not done this for a while. I want to say a big thank you to those of you who have uh, prayed for me uh, during this time. It is much appreciated. I'm still not uh, tip top, but let's see how we get on uh, this morning. Let's pray together uh, before we begin. Our glorious Father, we want to pray for those who have been recently uh, bereaved. We pray that they would Uh, know that you will uh, lead them through this time however dark it seems at the moment and you will lead them out the other side. Thank you that you will never leave them nor forsake them. And we pray for all of us that you would give us the spirit of wisdom and revelation this morning so that we might know you better and even right now open the eyes of our hearts so that we might discover further the the scope, the scale, and the full dimensions of your love for us in our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. I wonder if you'll turn on to page 1173 in your Bibles. That reading was by way of background, and we are starting this morning a uh, new series uh, in the book of Ephesians. And I would like us to focus our hearts and minds on Ephesians chapter 1 and uh, verses 1 and 2, and actually really verse 1. So page 1173, let me read to you those first two verses. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God... To God's holy people in Ephesus, the faithful in Christ Jesus, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, when we're reading uh, these uh, letters, these New Testament letters, we need to know that God intended them not only for the original readers back in the first century, but God intended them for us here today and for Christians right the way through the ages until our Lord Jesus Christ uh, will return. And what we discover from these letters is that God cares for us to such an extent that he has left out nothing that we need, nothing that we need for our salvation. And so it is with this letter, God's aim is to strengthen us through this letter and to assure us that we are loved and also to protect us from any kind of false teaching. He wants us to rest assured that we are on his heart and at the heart of his saving plan. It's a plan for the whole cosmos centred around his son, our Lord Jesus Christ. This letter is a blood transfusion. It will inject life and vitality and boost our spiritual immunity if we receive it rightly. Now, as children, um, when uh, a a story was placed into our hands, uh, we used to sort of rush through it to to the end um, as quick as possible, of course, because we wanted to know what happens, but as adults, hopefully, we, we've learned, especially with great literature, that you need to slow down and, and focus on those first few sentences in particular. And it is exactly the same with Paul's letter, uh, letters in general and this letter to the Ephesians. We need to slow down and we need to see what he has to say to us because there is so much in these opening words, especially in this first couple of verses. Just by the way, Paul wrote about AD 62. He wrote from prison and probably a prison in Rome. And right at the start, what we find is that God wants to strengthen us and stabilize our faith until the day of perfection. So in sum, what we have in these two verses is Christ or God's apostle writing to God's people to bring God's blessing. And it turns out there's quite a lot um, in just uh, the first two of those parts of the sentence. And so what we'll do is we'll expand on the gospel blessings, the grace and the peace mentioned in verse two uh, from next week. So let, let's begin with Christ's apostle, Paul. See, Paul uh, introduces his name his office, and then his authority to speak. Now, Paul, as we heard in the reading, was the one that Jesus met with on the Damascus Road. Paul was uh, part of the uh, religious establishment of his day. He was a man with blood on his hands. He was a man who was implacably opposed to Christ and to the followers of of Christ. And yet Jesus Christ, in his grace, met with him, confronted him, changed him, converted him, and then commissioned him to be his apostle. That was his office. He was an apostle. Now, you need to know that the Bible talks about the apostle in more than one way, but the, the way that's being talked about here, we'll come to it in chapter 2, verse 20, is that that he is a foundational apostle, a foundational apostle. And to be qualified for that, you need to have seen the risen Jesus Christ and commissioned and sent out by him, um, performing the miracles of the risen uh, Christ, to speak and to write in his name and with his authority. And Paul was one of those guys, along with the the Twelve. And these people laid the foundation of the church, in terms of its uh, teaching. So when they died, this apostolic foundational ministry ceased. Because the foundation, of course, had been laid. And that being the case, we can see the, the error of the Roman Catholic Church when it claims that the office of Pope is a perpetual apostleship in the church? We need to ask, don't we, has the Pope seen Christ in in the flesh? Has the Pope or any of the Popes done the miracles of Christ? The answer is no, and actually uh, the Roman Catholics would agree. They would say that's not the case. But because that's not the case, they can't possibly be the kind of foundational apostle that they claim. So the Pope does not speak with any kind of apostolic authority, either on his own or altogether. There is no apostolic authority from the Pope and from his bishops. But Paul does speak with that kind of authority. Now, just by way of a sidebar, I just want to say that I don't enjoy criticising Roman Catholicism, or any other um, religion, for that matter. I don't enjoy that. But I feel that it's necessary to do it. I will need to do it a little bit later as well. And the reason why I think it's necessary to do it, because there is so much confusion. I think we assume we know what the teaching of the Roman Catholic Church is, but actually when you get into it, I think you would be astonished. I think few really know just how much the teaching of that church conflicts with this book here. Well, the apostle speaks and writes with divine authority. And that means that we we dare not treat his words as if they were just the words of another man. It's not just another guy with another opinion when we come to Paul or the whole of the scripture, of course. Paul is a mouthpiece of Jesus Christ. At the transfiguration, the Father witnessed from heaven that we shouldn't listen to anyone except his Son. And Paul is a mouthpiece of the Son, commissioned and sent to speak for him. Now, of course, this wasn't controversial for the Ephesians. They accepted this. But, of course, it was controversial for the, the Galatians and some of the Corinthians, which is why Paul has to go into this lengthy kind of defense of his apostleship. But here he just mentions it briefly, Paul, an apostle by the will of God. It is God's will that Paul was a, appointed to be an apostle of Jesus Christ. So whose apostle is he? He is an apostle of Jesus Christ. And as we hear that name, if we are believing folk, then that name, well, it enables us to receive this teaching. It dissolves any kind of resistance that we might have as we go through uh, this book. He is Christ's apostle, our mediator, our saviour, our great high priest, sympathetic to us. A spoonful of sugar makes the medicine go down. By nature, if we read this letter to the Ephesians, we're, g- we're going to find that there are things which we which we find very difficult and offensive, even. But when we know that they come to us from our Lord Jesus Christ, sent from the Father, they're sweetened to us. Any bitterness is taken away. Because we know that these words are designed to heal us and to help us. And so the first thing we need to take on board from this uh, letter is that we need to accept it without reservation or hesitation. For some of us here, I know that those things will be fairly obvious. And I know that this letter will strengthen you and stabilise you in your faith and will nourish your soul. But a word of warning to perhaps some who assume that they accept the New Testament teaching, but who are perhaps a bit selective. You're a bit sort of choose some bits, but, but not other bits. Because if we do that with God's word, what we, we're doing really is we're rising up against him and fighting against him. So there's teaching in here which is difficult to uh, receive, teaching about predestination or about original sin, that we are born by nature as objects of God's wrath. Some of the stuff about marriage is difficult, some of the, the stuff about sexual morality is difficult. But the thing is, if we rise up and we pick and choose and say, well, I like that bit and and not that bit, then we're fighting against God. And I don't need to tell you that if we fight against God, it's not going to go well for us. And this letter will have no saving benefit for us whatsoever. Now, hear me carefully. I'm not saying that if you have any doubts about God's words that you're not a Christian. I'm, I'm I'm not saying that. In fact, it's often those with the with the keenest of minds that are led into various doubts of this, this nature. And, and for them, what's happening, I think, is that, that God is humbling them and teaching them that they cannot believe without the Holy Spirit in their lives. And by this, God is strengthening them. I just want to speak um, to those of you who do have some honest doubts uh, about the the Scripture as being divinely authoritative, I just want to give you just a few quick directions. Number one, I would urge you to just revise the many prophecies in the Scripture and their fulfillments, often hundreds of years later, precise fulfillments. I think that'll help you. Uh, Number two, compare the quality of this book with any other writing in the world. And I think you will be reminded that the the quality of this is is superior in nature. And third, just recall the effect that this book has had on so many down the ages, people who have been willing to lay down their lives for it, willing to go to the flames for it, as well as the effect that it's had on your own heart and the hearts of those around you and people you know. So let's resolve to receive this letter readily and let's refuse to to rise up uh, against God and be selective with it. That's the first thing that we need to take on board. Paul begins by introducing himself. He is an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God. Well, what then is the very first thing that this apostle wants to speak to us about? What is the thing he wants us to be crystal clear about as, he go, as we go into this letter and study it together? Well, the answer is he wants us to be clear about to whom he is writing, and he is writing to God's people. Now, by that, I'm, I'm not saying that there is limited value for you if you wouldn't call yourself one of God's people. In fact, I would argue exactly the opposite of that, that, there's, that there is, in fact, no better way that you can spend your time uh, this morning or uh, the next uh, few Sunday, Sunday mornings than gathering with us and listening to what this... Uh, letter has to say. Nonetheless, in the first instance, this letter is directed by God's apostle to God's people, God's people. Here in this first verse, we have what is a remarkable uh, definition, a striking description of a Christian and what a Christian is. It is really the irreducible minimum of what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ. And it's absolutely critical that we're clear about where we stand, because the blessings of this letter are for those who are Christians. And it is so easy to be deceived in this. This week I was um, reading about a, a dull preacher, very dry, very academic, and as he was going through his sermon, suddenly he broke down in tears. And one of the congregation jokes, oh, the preacher's converted himself. But it was true, he had. He had converted himself. And the point is that it is very easy to mistake yourself for a Christian and not be a Christian. You can even be a, the preacher or a leader of a church and think you're a Christian and not be. And so Paul here takes time to define and to describe a Christian so that you and I can know for sure where we stand. The description has three parts. A Christian is a saint, is faithful, and is in Christ. First, a saint. Now, the NIV here is unique, I think, in translating holy people, God's holy people. Saint is a better translation, even though it's a bit archaic. In fact, almost all translations go for saint, because it avoids giving the impression that what's being primarily talked about here is about Christian character. I don't think that is the primary idea. But let me ask you, would you call yourself a saint? Should we comfortable doing that? Or are you more likely to say, well, I'm a Christian, but I'm no saint? Is that what you would do? Because once again, I think, the the Pope snatches away this letter out of our hands. Of course, it is biblical and right to honour extraordinary Christians. So, Paul tells the Philippians to honour Epaphroditus, for example. But this isn't what the Roman Catholics do. They reserve the term saint for a select group of people. People who become saints because, as the Catholic Catechism claims, and I quote, they have practised heroic virtue... And lived in fidelity to God's grace. Section eight to eight of the Catholic Catechism. See, most people don't realize this, but the Roman Catholic Church teaches that saints, albeit with the initiating grace that comes through the sacramental system, merit eternal life. And how do they merit it? Through their heroic Virtue through their good deeds, and in that way, you see, Catholicism snatches a letter like this out of the hands of ordinary Christians. This letter isn't written to special Christians or saintly Christians, it's not written to teachers or to theologians. It is a letter from God sent to ordinary Christian people everywhere to the saints. Now, what does it mean to be a saint? What's the definition? Well, it simply means to be set apart. A saint is somebody who's set apart from the world, set apart by God, and set apart for God. And if you are a Christian person, this is your fundamental identity. I wonder if that's how you see yourself. Back in the Old Testament, the people of Israel were, were called God's holy people. And as Christians, we are God's holy people set apart. Is that how you see yourself? So you might be an English person or or not. You, you might be right wing or left wing. You might be black or white. You might be middle class, upper class, lower class, you might be from the south or, or from the north or, or whatever. And those aspects of your identity are important. They matter but if you are a Christian person, they are not the fundamental thing about you. The fundamental thing about you, if you are a Christian, is that you have been set apart by God. You've been separated from the world. And that affects your outlook and your worldview. It affects your heart and your conversation. It affects your interests. And it affects your behavior as well. You're certainly in the world, whether that's in Ephesus or in Banstead or or wherever, but you are no longer worldly. Is that how you see yourself? That you are a person who is not governed by the world any longer, but governed by Jesus Christ. Fundamentally, a Christian is a saint, but not only a saint, second, faithful. And this indicates Uh, that a Christian is someone who has made a positive response to the gospel message. Uh, On Wednesday, I was reading John Wesley's journal. As you probably know, John Wesley was the founder of Methodism. He used to meet in what's called a holy club with a a bunch of his uh, fellow Methodists, and they used to um, study the the Bible and urge one another on to good deeds. He used to do this uh, daily. And in his journal, writing in 1737, at this point he's he's sailing back from America where he's been on a missionary trip, he writes this. It is now two years and almost four months since I left my native country in order to teach the Georgian Indians the nature of Christianity. But what have I learned myself in the meantime? Why, what I least suspected... That I, who went to America to convert others, was myself never converted to God. Shocking, isn't it? He goes on then to recount his conversion about how he came to true and saving faith. I felt my heart strangely warmed. I felt I did trust in Christ, Christ alone for salvation. And an assurance was given me that he had taken away my sins, even mine, and saved me from the law of sin and death. personal, you see. He says, my sin, my salvation, my saviour. He's not merely agreeing with Christianity. He's trusting Christ. True faith is personal challenges us to ask, is our faith in Christ personal like that? Of course, true Christianity has has a basic content to that. The Christian believes that that God in Christ became man, lived a sinless life, uh, died on the cross, rose again, is ruling, will return. A Christian Uh, believes that. But Wesley believed that before he became a Christian. More is needed. You need to not only know the truth, you need to agree with the truth. So you need to say I I believe that Jesus rose, not only that Christians believe this, but I believe that Jesus rose physically um, from the dead, that it happened. But again, Wesley not only knew the content of Christianity, he agreed with the content of Christianity. And yet he wasn't a Christian at that point. He was missing one vital element. He was missing that element of personal trust in Christ. See, a Christian says, for me it's personal. Jesus lived for me. Jesus died for me. Jesus didn't just rise in general. He rose for me. The Son of God loved me for the Christian, the, the gospel promises are not just true out there. They are true out there, but they are true in here. They have been embraced by the heart. Christian is a saint. A Christian is faithful. And thirdly, a Christian is in Christ. Now, this is a really important phrase um, in the whole of the New Testament. It comes 36 times just in Uh, Ephesians, including things like being uh, with Christ and other phrases like that. And it's really the heart of Christianity. It's talking about being united to Christ. That's the idea behind it. In Christ means being united to Christ. And it is doubly connected here. So it is saints in Christ Jesus and the faithful in Christ Jesus. See, the only reason I'm a saint, the only reason that I am one of the faithful, believing in Christ, the only reason that you, if that's you, are one of those and have trusted Christ through the trials of 22 and will continue to trust him through the trials of 23, the only reason is because God looked at you and loved you. And when God looked at you, he didn't find anything in you that was lovable. He just chose out of his free mercy and grace to love you and he lifted you And out of his sovereign decree and placed you in Christ. That's what has happened to you. Now the nature of this union to Christ has uh, a twin facet. The union is both representational and relational. Representational. The union is representational. Representational you ever pondered that language in the New Testament when it talks about saying we've, we've died with Christ and we've been raised with Christ? Or in Ephesians that we've, been, uh, as we've ascended with Christ and we've sat down with him in the heavenlies? What does that mean? Have you wonder, wondered about that? You'll see it everywhere now if you haven't spotted it. One of my uh, favourite uh, authors is a, is a Puritan um, called Thomas Goodwin. And uh, Thomas uh, Goodwin, uh, go and look him up, but uh, he, he said that there are two giants that tower over human history. And, and the first giant is Adam. And he picks up the language of 1 Corinthians 15 and Romans 5. And he says that by birth, all of us, as it were, are hooked upon the belt of Adam. Adam. And we all sort of swing from this belt. The whole of humanity is attached to Adam, and, and he is our great representative. So that when Adam sinned, there is a sense, but because he is our representative, we sinned in Adam. And because he is our representative, his fate becomes our fate death. But God, in his great grace and mercy, has unhooked us from Adam's belt, if we're believing in Christ, and has hooked us on to the belt of a second giant that towers over human history, our Lord Jesus Christ. So that he now is our representative. And that means, of course, that when Christ died, we died And when Christ rose again, we rose. And when Christ ascended and sat at the right hand of the Father in heaven, we sat down with him because he is our representative and we are in him. See what this means? It means that if we're in Christ, we are as secure as if we were already in heaven. Outside of Christ... We were lost, children of God's wrath, chapter 2, verse 3, heading for a ruined eternity. But in Christ, we are everlastingly secure in Christ's hand for eternity. Now, this glorious union is not the privilege and preserve of the elite Christians. It is true of ordinary Christians like you it is the god-given birthright of every believer in christ the saints in heaven may be more happy but they are not more secure our union is both well is representational but it doesn't stop there it's also relational our union isn't only external it is intimate it is a relational union Ephesians picks up three images here. It talks about the relationship between a head and a body, or a temple indwelt by the Spirit, or the union between a husband and a wife. And as we we know how uh, intimate those relationships are, well, much more so is the intimacy in the spiritual realm between Christ and the believer. And it's pretty hard to describe this. In fact, it's Easier to experience than it is to describe. But what does this mean? Again, what does it mean? Well, it means this. That every affection that the Father has for the Son, if you are in Christ, he has for you. He sees you as if you are in Christ. And that every blessing that he showers on his Son, he showers on you in him. You'll spend your life trying to wrap your heart and your head around that staggering truth. But Paul's description of the Christian is comprehensive. The Christian is a saint because they have been set apart by God and for God. They are faithful because they have personally trusted in Christ. And all of this because they have been placed in Christ. Amazing grace. How sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. Well, our time is uh, pretty gone. Let me uh, draw some threads together. Number one, we've seen the importance of approaching the Apostle's letter in the right spirit. If we are to derive any benefit from this letter, then we've got to come to it with the right attitude. Number two, we've also seeing the importance of facing that critical question of whether or not we are true Christians. Before we start to ask and answer any kind of questions about Christian living, we need to get this one straight. We've got to face up to this question. Are we Christians? Are we saints? Have you been set apart by God and for God? We're not asking here whether whether you're better people Uh, We know that's often not the case. We're asking whether you have a different outlook from your non-Christian friends. And do you have different priorities for yourself, for your kids, and for your grandkids than others? Is your life purpose to serve and love Christ? Do you see the world differently from your non-Christian friends? In these kinds of ways, are we different? Not because we're better but because God has set us apart for himself. Are we of the faithful? Not merely do we believe the right things, but is it personal for you? Can you say Christ died, and can you also say Christ died for me? Can you truly say the Son of God loved me? And are we in Christ, or are we yet in adam an object of god's wrath destined for destruction or has god taken you and hooked you onto the giant christ so that he is your representative and you have a relationship so intimate that all the affections of the father and all the blessings that christ deserve belong to you If you are outside of Christ, then none of these blessings are yours. You are still in Adam. You urgently need to get unhooked from him. Why will you die? God has no pleasure in your death. Why won't you go to him and ask him to take you out of Adam and to hook you on? To Christ and unite you to him because if you are in Christ then every blessing is yours you are safe you are secure you are loved you are accepted however small forgotten or inconsequential you may feel in this world you are on your father's heart and at the heart of your father's plan A plan for all Christians, for every church, and as we will go on to see in this letter, for the entire cosmos. Let's take a moment, just reflect upon what God has been saying to us this morning, and then I'll lead us in prayer. Father, we thank you that in this world you haven't left us without truth, and uh, we thank you for the truth contained in these two short verses which we've briefly looked at. We pray that we would understand them deeply, and we pray that you would help us to meditate upon them this week so that we might receive your word as coming from your very lips, and also that we might know where we stand with you. We do thank and praise you, uh, if we are those who have believed, for mercifully granting us that great privilege and all the blessings that come from being in Christ. Amen.